0: This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now onto Climate Rising.
1: One thing that we should all think about is how can we help mitigate climate crisis? How can we help reduce the carbon emission? And I believe that there are many opportunities actually to use AI and other measures, of course, to do something about it.
0: This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, I'm talking with Yasi Matias, Vice President of Engineering and Research at Google and the founding managing director of Google Center in Israel. Yasi leads teams that are developing AI solutions to address climate mitigation and adaptation. I'll also ask Yasi about Google's partnerships and collaborations to innovate in this space. And as usual, I'll ask him to share some advice for those interested in working at the intersection of business and climate change. Here's my interview with Yassi Matias with Google. Thanks so much, Yassi, for joining us here on Climate Rising. Thank you very much for having me here, Mike. We've asked you to come to tell us about the climate change and AI interface at Google, which you've written about and have been involved in for some time. Before we jump into that, maybe we can just get an overview of your role at Google and how you got there. Sure.
1: I'm vice president of engineering and research. Been Google now for um, 16 years plus. Actually, I'm also a site lead of uh, Google site in Israel. Joined Google to start a site in Israel and build it up from scratch to uh, where we are now, over 2,000 people. I've been working for over a decade on search and in the last few years, actually focusing more and more into AI and how it can actually impact uh, many things in our lives. Terrific.
0: Let's start with Google, the company. Can you explain how Google is organized and where climate and AI fit within the organization?
1: Sure, so in a way, both are across the organization. So if I start with climate, Google was actually one of the first companies to become carbon neutral back in 2007. Made a bold commitment just last year. We set a goal to achieve net zero emissions across our operations and value chain by 2030. And this is something that touches many aspects of our organization. Now also, we are an AI first company. AI is obviously something that we're looking into in all our products and functions and operations. I'm now part of the research organization where we're developing and advancing AI. Part of what I'm doing is advancing AI for the benefit of society in areas such as climate crisis, health AI, conversational AI. So obviously the intersection of climate and AI is something that is very top of mind for me.
0: Yossi, how did you get involved in this interface between AI and climate at Google?
1: I've been leading crisis response at Google now for a few years, but actually my involvement in crisis response goes back 12 years ago when we had one of the biggest wildfires in Israel for many decades near our Hive office in the Carmel Mountains. I was visiting there that day and remember seeing that huge mushroom-like smoke in the sky and looking for information on the internet to see what I should be doing, and I couldn't find any useful information until eventually calling the mayor's office and getting some useful information. So I asked my search team to actually put it out there so that anybody could find it when they're looking for the same information that I did. This was, in a way, the genesis of my efforts to look into how to provide actionable information to people during crisis, because it turns out that the same phenomena occurs whenever there's a crisis, natural disaster, or other types of crisis. People are actually coming to Google to look for information about what's going on, how to remain safe. This is an opportunity for us to actually help people with this kind of information. A few years later, we started out our renewed initiative where we made sure that everybody can get information in major crisis within an hour in search and maps, which was you know activated many, many times since then with uh, many hundreds of millions of views. But soon after, what I discovered is that one of the most devastating natural disasters, namely floods, the information is just not there. Because floods, which are estimated to have impact on thousands of lives annually, thousands of people lose their lives and many millions impacted, the helpful information would be to alert people before floods occur. And this information was just not available. So this was actually the genesis to try and ask ourselves, is there anything we can do with AI in order to have better information that could help alert people about floods? This goes back to 2017, 2018. And at the time, it didn't look like they were promising because the problem was difficult but it was worthwhile to try anyway because of its impact. Fast forward, it turns out that advancing the science and technology and using the most advanced AI that we can have along with advancing the science of hydrology combination with machine learning, we can predict floods pretty accurately. Just last year, we sent out over 115 million notifications to people at risk in India and Bangladesh, alerting them on floods coming their way eight hours or more before they arrive. And just last November, we actually expanded something we call the Flood Hub to provide flood forecasting information to about 20 countries. I found out that AI can be very helpful to address such a difficult and important problem such as floods. And in parallel, we started looking into other problems. So the genesis of my interest in this space was wildfires. Then now we already can use AI to actually have pretty good wildfire boundary detection so that we can actually provide near-real-time information to uh, people and authorities about where the boundaries of wildfire is based on satellite imagery, again using AI. And of course, the promise looking forward is to see if we can even have earlier kind of warnings about fires as they start. And this could obviously be very helpful to address these problems. Now, when you think about the climate crisis with global warming, What we see is increased in frequency and intensity of the likes of floods and wildfires so obviously this shows the opportunity to use ai to actually address such disasters
0: so you're taking data from weather forecasts including prevailing winds and wind forecasts for wildfires maybe how dry things are using satellite imagery on the flood side you're using topography forecasts on rain and noting where people live. And you're combining all of this to create a predictive model to say, where are the wildfires going or where are the floods going? And then you're pushing this out through tools like this SOS alert and other tools to communicate both with residents as well as with governments. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's
1: pretty succinct description. I would say that AI plays multiple roles. So for example, for floods, you can think about multiple problems that need to be addressed. One is to understand the situation of where the water is, and sometimes we get this from partnering countries, sometimes we can actually learn it directly from satellite information. But there's also other information that is critical to have such predictions, such as understanding the lay of the land, the 3D topography of the rivers, so that one can actually apply those physics hydraulic simulations in order to predict where the water is going to go and the extent to which they are going to go because we really would like to have predictions which are quite accurate about the water level in order to be effective in warning people. And there's there's the question of dissemination where here it's again a combination of either using the mobile phones of people, we have also some partnerships with organizations on the ground that sometimes actually use some low-tech technologies to notify people about water coming their way. So it's a combination of all these factors that come together in order to eventually let people know floods are coming their way. And this needs to be quite accurate with high confidence. Otherwise, people would not take action. So you don't have too many chances to warn people if you can't be trusted about this warning. So accuracy of prediction is quite important.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about accuracy. That's that's one of the questions that was coming to my mind. I'm glad you mentioned it. It seems to me it's all different ways to measure the predictive accuracy of algorithms, a simple way of thinking about this often is a type one error and a type two error, like type one error being when you predicted a problem that you suggested people should evacuate, and then it actually didn't materialize. Type two error being you didn't predict it, and it materialized anyway. And of course, there's different metrics that are based on these concepts. How do you think about the predictive accuracy of these alerts? Uh, it's a good question. So, what we're trying
1: to do is actually provide information in both directions to show on a map, here's a polygon that with very high confidence is going to show where the flood is going to be. Now, there are trade offs. So, when you show high confidence there's going to be floods, you may miss some areas. And there could be another polygon which says here's an area that is good chances that is covering most of the areas that is going to be covered. So, that Uh, If you take that seriously, you're going to have uh, very few false negatives. On that one, you, by definition, have more false positives. So then it's a judgment call of how to take these two areas and what actions to be taken. But what we also learned, you know, three years ago, I actually went with my team to see things, how they are in the field. And what we really learned is the importance of the water level. You know, we got into this place that uh, our predictions show that it's flooded. And it was flooded, except that what we've seen is kids playing with the balls in the water. And this actually highlighted that we need to have the water level is critical because, in, you know, if it's very shallow, then there's inconvenience or fun, depending on what's going on. But if it's deep, that's actually where it's life
0: threatening. Right. The other thing that I wonder about this is how this is interfacing with governments, because governments are usually thought to be the ones who are issuing these warnings, the evacuation warnings, or the boil water warnings and things like that. And you mentioned you're working with governments, but if folks are finding this on an SOS alert coming directly from Google, if there's a conflict between Google's advice about whether to evacuate or not, or how much water's coming and their government agencies advice, how are you managing the issues there where the government might be upset with you if you're telling folks to evacuate and they're not, or they're telling people to evacuate and there's no mention from Google? How do you manage that conflict?
1: So actually there's no conflict because these efforts are actually great example of partnering between technology and governments there's a very nice op-ed that was written just before cop 26 by Bangladesh government official highlighting that the innovation of the type of partnerships that we have on flood forecasting is kind of a role model to the kind of innovation that we'd like to see for climate crisis an example where we're partnering not only with governments as well as with academia with ngos with organizations on the ground Everybody's aligned on the same mission here, and it's all done in a coordinated way.
0: I see. So there has to be a partnership in order to avoid these types of conflicts. Definitely. Definitely. Let's talk about other opportunities for Google to use its AI technologies to address maybe longer-term concerns on the adaptation resilience side. I know you've done some work on urban planning, with agriculture, with land use change. What's another story you can tell us pivoting now from the short-term crisis response to a longer-term issue?
1: Obviously, when we're talking about the implications of climate crisis, this is already a result of a crisis that is happening. And, uh, and one thing that we should all think about is how can we help mitigate the climate crisis? How can we help reduce the carbon emission? And I believe that there are many opportunities actually to use AI and other measures, of course, to do something about it. Let me give one example uh, of a project that is showing a lot of promise in doing that. So obviously a lot of the carbon emission is coming out of cars. Much of it is actually happening in the cities. It turns out that a lot of the carbon emission happens actually in intersections where cars are waiting in traffic lights, not only because they're waiting, but often actually they are starting and stopping and starting and stopping. And it turns out actually this has significant contribution to the carbon emission of cars in cities. So we set up this initiative that we call Greenlight, where we're looking into if we can do a better job in how traffic lights are scheduled so that we can reduce the number of those events of start-stop, which are contributing to carbon emission. We do that without putting any sensors whatsoever because that would be pretty expensive and slow process, but rather just use information that we have from apps or ways of traffic flow through those intersections. And it turns out that we can do actually quite well. We had 10 cities uh, in pilot in 2022, from Rio to Bangalore, Seattle, Budapest, Manchester, multiple cities in Israel and more, where we try to apply, and the way it works is just analyzing the traffic that we can see and applying AI to try and get a better optimization of the traffic light schedule and suggesting to partnering cities to try that schedule. So example, in Hamburg, Germany, cars made 25% fewer stops resulting in approximately 10% fewer emissions at intersections so that's an example where we can actually use technology to address a phenomena that is contributing to carbon emission the potential of that of course in the long term is to scale and have an impact in a significant way of reducing the carbon emission globally One interesting aspect of this is when you think about it, the relative ease of deployment, no sensors required, pretty simple change. It integrates into the workflow of existing cities, and still it can actually make a difference in the carbon emission that we have.
0: There's some interesting complexity buried in that story. One is the data. How do you know where the cars are? The traffic patterns that we have through maps and ways in
1: the aggregate form So it's the kind of same type of data that was used by cities during COVID when they were looking for mobility reports to understand where cars are going or which direction, or essentially the same information that they used to show you that there's a traffic jam ahead of you and how long you should expect the traffic is going to get you to get from where you are to your destination. So essentially that information is all about an aggregate number of how many cars are there. So this information is just information of, uh, that can be used for optimization in a pretty straightforward way from the problem definition point of view. The technology itself is how to actually do the scheduling in the right way and in a way that actually scales effectively. And that's actually where machine learning plays a role in actually
0: solve the problem effect- effectively. Right. So this is sort of the two-way virtuous cycle of folks engaging with, for example, Google Maps or Waze, where from the consumer perspective, you're benefiting by having the journey mapped out for you, and you're also contributing to the algorithm by telling Google where you are and therefore how quickly you're moving. And that's what helps Google figure out the traffic patterns and sometimes offering alternative routes because of everyone sort of contributing to this commons of data.
1: Exactly. And the, the only information that is uh, relevant here, of course, is the aggregate information of how many cars are standing in the light and also not in real time necessarily for the traffic light optimization problem, but just to
0: understand the patterns so that we can actually make a better adaptation for that kind of patterns. Right. The other thing that's super interesting to me about this green light program is like, it's quite complicated to change one light pattern and then model how that traffic will be resolved at that one corner, because that might be initially what you're trying to optimize. But then that traffic then moves to the next corner and you have to sort of optimize the system and not just one street corner at a time, because these things all have interactions. And you're doing all that in the background of your optimization algorithm. Exactly, and and for the traffic
1: light, I mean, in some cases what we really need is something that is real-time analysis, this is an example, actually, that typically the patterns are pretty consistent, so it's more like doing the optimization. But you're right. I mean, this is kind of an optimization problem that those studying computer science would possibly apply various techniques to that for years now. Uh, and now with you know machine learning technologies and new, uh, new ways to actually compute optimizations of this sort, we can actually do a much better job and a much better
0: scale what's another story of mitigation besides the green light traffic optimization that google's working on
1: well another example i can uh, perhaps highlight is a project called tree canopy which is about helping cities actually prepare themselves so you know cities around the world that are really concerned about is what they call heat islands which have implications on particular areas in the city that are subject to higher temperatures and also uh, air pollution which has impact on health. Tree Canopy is a project that is using what we call our Environmental Insights Explorer to provide the information to cities so they can make decisions of where to plant trees so as to lower the street level temperature and make streets uh, greener, improve air quality. To understand the tree location that is going to make the biggest impact, that's a design principle that is helpful to actually make the right kind of investments. Obviously, this is kind of a longer-term investment, and this is a project that, for example, just last year was expanded to hundreds of cities to enable them to make these kind of choices.
0: So it's another example of combining data with optimization. Where here you're optimizing. It sounds like heat island effect mitigation and perhaps also uh, pollution mitigation. Is that? Right.
1: Correct. Yeah. So for example, the city of Los Angeles, they piloted tree canopy and now it's become a critical piece of the city's long-term goal to increase tree shade by at least 50% by 2028 in areas of highest needs. So if you think about it, you have limited resources, of course, for investing in a city. And then the question is, how do you invest it in tree planning so as to get the best result for the city when taking into account the impact? That
0: you're going to get with the cities. Interesting. Now, these are examples where you're mentioning Google's partnering with cities and sometimes nonprofits. Google Cloud has launched some accelerator programs to link Google's climate products to entrepreneurs. So, I think seeking out new ways to use these tools and asking entrepreneurs to partner with you. Can you tell us a little bit about those programs? So, actually, we have multiple programs where we are encouraging
1: and supporting entrepreneurs and NGOs and startups worldwide. One kind of observation is that, you know, innovation can come from many directions and definitely I think there's an opportunity for many to contribute towards solution for the goals of, you know, addressing the climate crisis. So for example, google.org, which is our philanthropic arm, we announced a $30 million impact challenge for climate innovation. And we made a $25 million commitment for what we call AI for Global Goals to use AI to accelerate progress against the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And we also have a program that is called Google for Startup Accelerator, where we dedicate one of our focuses to uh, sustainability in something that we call Startups for Sustainable Development, where we now already support about uh, 400 or so startups, which are working on various aspects of Sustainable Development Goals. And it can be anything from the mitigation or adaptation, or it can be food security, which is another kind of verification of the climate crisis. The idea here is that we can support startups by providing them with mentorship, with collaboration. Sometimes we have some what we call Google.org fellows who are working with startups to help them out to provide solutions. Sometimes it's about collaborations. For example, we have in Africa a collaboration between a research team uh, in Accra, Ghana, and a company called InstaDeep about using machine learning to identify areas of locust breeding. By identifying it early enough, the premise is that we can actually reduce the damage done by locust, which has severe damage, of course, on food security. Let me give you an example, perhaps, to one startup that is helping small businesses. One of our programs, startup called Normative. Normative actually is providing an AI-enabled business carbon calculator, and it was supported by Google.org, including fellows, which essentially are Google employees that are helping out the startup for a certain amount of time, and it actually developed the world's largest free resource to measure and reduce carbon emissions for small businesses. The tool now measured more than 1.7 million metric tons of CO2 emissions, equivalent to annual emissions of about almost 200,000 people on their daily life, and it now helped over 2,600 small businesses calculate their emissions over more than 80 countries. So that's an example for a startup that is helping out businesses take actions. We're helping them to use AI in order to develop their technologies. And and if you think about it, there are so many different ideas that can be applied in so many different ways to businesses, to consumers, and more. So we're trying to see how to help out the ecosystem in any of those ways.
0: Yeah. How do you make decisions about where to spend your time? Because there must be an unbelievable amount of inbound traffic asking for Google's support or to plug into Google tools. And I imagine, despite your team's computer science orientation and scalability, that there are nonetheless limits to how much you guys can think about. Can you tell us a little bit about how you decide which of these efforts to engage in, which of these to maybe put on the back burner, which to decline? How do you think through those questions?
1: Excellent question. So uh, my approach is, is very simple. It's really what I would like to call impact driven, which is the main question to ask is how much impact could we do by making a particular investment? The question is simple. The answer is not always simple. When we talk about impact, of course, there's a question of estimation. If successful, how much impact is it going to make? Sometimes you actually need to evolve into this calculation. I mean, even the project that I mentioned about flood forecasting, when we started it, it wasn't clear that we can actually do anything about it. So my initial investment was actually minimal. It was, you know, more or less asking one engineer to spend part of his time to see if we can make any progress. And then as we started building confidence that we can actually have impact, then accordingly, we started increasing investment so as to tap on that impact. Similarly, on any such project, even green light is a result actually of uh, many brainstorming sessions done by my team where people came with many different ideas and we tried to rank them and, and go through them and analyze what is the expected impact. And eventually it kind of bubbled to the top as a project that we should invest in because if successful, that could actually have material impact and move the needle on carbon emission globally. So I think there's a kind of process that we need to keep doing. Similarly, when talking about how to mentor, so obviously when we have a program that we try to support hundreds of startups, then it's difficult to know upfront which is a good direction and which not, and that's why. But on the other hand, sometimes the only way to figure out is actually to get going. And the role that we can play is give them the basic tools in order to try and explore some of those ideas and see how they go. So... It's not dissimilar from many other areas where i look looking to how to invest attention and resources, where, from my point of view, is always about how much impact can I expect to have with respect to what we're trying to do.
0: So that's interesting. It reminds me of how some of the environmental NGOs I've talked with prioritize their work. It's impact-oriented. This part of Google that you work for isn't a nonprofit. So does... Financial contribution have to play a role somewhere in this conversation. So
1: the beautiful thing about when we think about the efforts that we're doing at Google is that when we're trying to solve a problem, then the problem doesn't need to tie back to financial consideration. Once we made a decision that it's part of our mission to help people in the context of climate crisis, the metrics by which we measure impact is how much progress we're doing on that. For example. In climate mitigation, the ultimate metric is how much carbon can we actually save. And that's actually the only guiding principle here, of course, with respect to how much effort and how much resources we need to invest in that direction. Similarly, in the context of uh, providing crisis response information to people, the relevant metric here is about how many people can we help and to what extent can we help them. And again, these tied directly to our mission of actually organizing world's information, making use universally accessible and useful. Plus it tied to our efforts to use technology to help society in a a strong way. So these are kind of the guiding principles on these efforts. As it relates to climate crisis, here we made very bold commitments, which is about how to help out uh, with carbon reduction. So in addition to net zero, we also are having goal about how to contribute to help with climate mitigation. And these are the guiding metrics by which
0: we measure the impact that we can do. So if there's no explicit financial returns in those considerations, how does Google decide how much resources to provide to this effort? So the way I think
1: about it is that given resources that we committed to put on that, how do I maximize the impact of what I can actually get out of that? There are multiple ideas and multiple directions we can invest in. Greenlight is and tree canopy and other efforts that I mentioned. These are only a few examples out of many other opportunities that we could be working on. The question is really all the time, how do we invest so as maximize the impact of what we're doing with whatever resources that we can? One of the reasons why I'm really excited also about supporting the community at large is that the notion of climate crisis is something that everybody should care about and many do. And there's an opportunity actually to collaborate here To the extent that we can help support, facilitate, mentor, amplify the impact of what others may be doing, that's an opportunity to get bigger impact out of whatever we can do. I would say this is kind of a societal problem that in a way we have a shared goal by everyone. More and more businesses see it as their business objective to also have better ESG mark, to understand their carbon footprint. And this goes back to that example that I mentioned, this startup that is providing this kind of information to businesses so that they can actually take action. So build platforms that enables others to take action. And thereafter, as a result, the hope is obviously to get better impact on how we're addressing the climate crisis.
0: Let's take a glimpse into the future with the advances of AI and the advances in data on climate of all sorts. What do you think are the most promising opportunities we haven't seen yet, but that might be five, 10 years down the road? So I
1: think the most promising opportunities are those that we don't know yet. And again, practically most of the examples I touched on today are things that perhaps we didn't think about a few years ago. I like to think about flood forecasting as an example for a problem that even though it appeared to be too difficult to tackle, it turns out we can more or less solve it effectively and at scale. Similarly, green light is something that is a little surprising in its simplicity from a conceptual point of view. No sensors required, it's just taking this information, making better experience to drivers and reduce carbon emission. Well, just a couple of years ago, actually, nobody thought about it, perhaps. What else do we have there that we didn't think about yet? Innovation and identifying those problems is one area that I'm optimistic about. The other, of course, is various types of technology that can help us identify opportunities, providing better information to people, providing better ways for people and businesses to take action that are going to result with mitigation, with uh, reducing the carbon emission, more efficient energy, better way to actually utilize more efficient energies. I would say that possibly some of the opportunities are opportunities that
0: we are not thinking about them as yet. Many of us were unaware of the great advances in chatbot AI technologies until a few weeks ago, and now it's quickly being adopted into search engines in ways that we hadn't anticipated. So there's a lot of interesting things coming down the pike, I'm sure. This conversation has been really interesting for me, and I'm sure many of our listeners, as being illuminating into the world of AI and climate change and how these technologies and algorithms and optimization can be applied to the climate change area, both on resilience and adaptation as well as on mitigation. For those of our listeners who are interested in getting into business and climate change issues and perhaps into this particular interface, what do you recommend they do to prepare themselves and which types of companies are hiring? Are there global hubs or global cities where these types of opportunities are more likely to arise? What advice do you have for our listeners in this area?
1: So one thing we've been seeing in the last few years is that climate crisis is becoming no longer a topic of a few that care about it, but everybody is aware that this is a global problem. COP27, which is the primary climate crisis conference, I've seen heads of states and many people from uh, both businesses, industries, and politicians all talking about climate crisis and ways to actually take actions on that. I think at this time, it's no longer a question of whether there's a crisis, but more a question of what measures we should be taking. And I think that positive signs are that also companies are taking it to heart, paying attention to that. So as I mentioned earlier, Google, as a company, made it a priority from its early days, putting a lot of effort into that. But I see more and more businesses, obviously, the measure of ESG which companies are paying attention to that, which is a measure for sustainability and and climate friendliness to some extent. So I think there are increasingly more opportunities. I think it depends on what people actually are looking to do. As I mentioned, there are hundreds or, or thousands of startups and NGOs trying to tackle various aspects of that. Because it becomes a priority to businesses, then I know that the climate tech industry is also starting to emerge and There are venture capital firms who are investing actually in climate tech-related initiatives and ventures. So obviously, there are some opportunities for entrepreneurs. Uh, There are many opportunities to take initiatives to find out the next innovation. My advice is to look for things that matter, to try and ask about any direction, how much impact is it going to have? Obviously, depending on the objective, it can be either the business impact in the area of climate tech or it can be the impact derived by how to help out address the problem in an innovative way on either climate adaptation or climate mitigation. There are still many opportunities here to uncover and to take action on to address it. And uh, certainly it's something that we should all care about. So um, I would be very happy to see more smart people working on this problem. Great.
0: Well, thank you so much, Yasi, for joining us here on Climate Rising. Thank you very much, Mike, for hosting me here. And thanks for having this
1: important podcast on such an important topic.
0: That was my conversation with Yassi Matias, Vice President at Google. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising, I'm your host, Mike Toffel, Kate Zerenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.